Side Hustle Show 260, from flipping textbooks to $4 million in sales. This is how to scale your Amazon FBA retail arbitrage business. What's up, what's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show, because sometimes you just got to double down on what's working and ignore everything else. That's exactly what Ryan Grant from OnlineSellingExperiment.com has done with his business, which combines the age-old buy-low-sell-high business model and the modern infrastructure of Amazon's e-commerce engine and the Fulfillment by Amazon program, the FBA program. Now, if that name sounds familiar, Ryan was a guest of mine nearly 200 episodes ago, more than three years ago, in episode 61 of the Side Hustle Show. At that point, he'd taken his little uh, textbook reselling side hustle and retail arbitrage business, basically buying clearance items locally and reselling them online. And he'd done that and he'd quit his $50,000 a year accounting job to do this stuff full time. So what's Ryan up to now? Well, he's doing pretty much the same stuff, but on a much larger scale. He's on track to sell more than $4 million worth of items this year. He's got a warehouse. He's built a team of 11 people so far to help source inventory and kind of manage the day-to-day operations of this thing. In other words, he's taken a relatively simple, relatively small-time, labor-intensive side hustle, something that almost all of us can do on the side, and turn it into a really substantial operation. And in the process, he's removed himself from the work that other people could do just as well, or maybe even better. In this uh, Where Are They Now episode, you're going to hear from Ryan how he's built a team to source the inventory, which to me would seem hard to do in this type of business, Uh, their buying criteria, how they pick the products, and what's changed in the Amazon FBA world since we last caught up in 2014. Notes and links for this one, plus a free downloadable PDF highlight reel with all of Ryan's top tips from this call are at sidehustlenation.com slash Ryan Grant, all one word. Before we dive in, let me take a moment to thank today's sponsor, designcrowd.com. Designcrowd is the crowdsourced graphic design platform for logos and websites, business cards, t-shirts, book covers, you name it. It's the service uh, that I use to create the cover for my latest book, Buy Buttons. And how it works is you submit a little design brief, basically, you know, what you're looking for, what you like, what you don't like, and then all these different designers from all around the world submit their ideas and compete for your business. I thought it was pretty cool. And as a Side Hustle Show listener, you can get up to $100 off your next design project at designcrowd.com slash hustle or with promo code hustle at checkout. That's designcrowd.com slash hustle for up to $100 off your next design project. I'll be back with my top takeaways from this chat with Ryan after the interview. Ready? Let's do it. Back in 2014, it was at the beginning of that year, it was mainly just me working in the business. I was doing everything from buying the inventory to sell on Amazon, to shipping that inventory to Amazon's warehouses, really all of the day-to-day, everything that it took to get the business going, I was doing at that point in time. So at that point, I would say I was truly self-employed, but I didn't really have a business. I didn't really have a team. I didn't have processes in place. I didn't have any of those additional pieces to make things run without me involved. Over the past three years, I've been very focused on building a team, putting processes in place, and really focusing on ways to make it a true business as opposed to something that's more of where I'm just self-employed, where it requires my time directly to produce income. Yeah. So during that time, I've my team is now, we're a team of 11 people. So I've brought on about three people per year over the past three years. The day-to-day operations of my business are now all handled by my team. We have people who will go out and buy inventory for us. We have people who list it for sale, who ship it. 
And then I have an operations manager slash COO who is in charge of all the day-to-day operations of the business. I'm still here. I'm working on different aspects of the business, working on growth and expansion opportunities, things like that. It's pretty impressive because the retail arbitrage business is one that on the surface seems tough to scale because it's tough to delegate, especially the sourcing. So tell me about that with the team in places going out and scanning items in the stores and doing that element for you. Like what's to stop them from being like, yeah, this was a really good find. I'm just going to keep this for myself and not put it under Ryan's account. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah. So that's been something that it was a little bit scary to do right away because like you mentioned, there's obvious concerns about training someone to do exactly what I do in the business. They could just sell the items on their own. But what I've found is that a lot of people have different motivations. So some people want to put their own money on the line and they want the upside associated with doing that. And then there's other people who are happy to get paid based on their performance, but they don't have that same level of risk. So there's a couple things we do for anybody who does the retail arbitrage role in my business where they're going out to stores and buying products for them. We do have them sign basically a non-compete agreement so that's saying that they won't compete directly with us. So that that provides some protection for making sure that they don't just go off and do it on their own. And then we also make sure that the position is like a good fit for their personality as well and make sure that they're not looking to truly have, say, their own business or something like that. They're, they want to be a part of the team okay. and kind of grow with the business. So it's been really nice to have that in place. but basically. It seems like it might be complicated to outsource the retail arbitrage component or or have people go to stores and buy items for you. But what I've found is that for the most part, there's a pretty systematized buying guidelines or there's some certain criteria that I'm looking for with any item that I purchase. And I can pass that along to a team member and then they can take that information and basically go through a checklist. If it fits it, they buy a certain quantity. If not, then they'll leave it on the shelf. So it's been really nice to have other people helping to do the retail arbitrage component of the business. Yeah, that was the time-consuming part when I was playing around with it. It was just like the the needle in the haystack nature of scanning stuff at Walmart and Home Depot and everything. Do you mind sharing what your buying criteria is with the audience? So the two main components that I'm going to be looking at are something known as the sales rank and the return on investment. So the sales rank is an indication of how well the item is selling on Amazon. It's going to be a number that Amazon has for each category. So the toys category has a sales rank, the electronics category has a sales rank, and each different category has its own sales rank. With sales rank, the lower the number, the better. So a sales rank of one is, in theory, the item that is sold most recently, and that's usually an indication that it's one of the best-selling items on Amazon. So key point, though, is lower the number, the better. So what I'm looking for, generally speaking, especially for someone who's just getting started, is a sales rank less than 250000 in any category. And then the other component is the return on investment component. So return on investment is basically just your profit divided by how much money it took you to make that profit. So after all fees and expenses, you make $5 in profit on an item, and it costs you $10 to purchase that item your return on investment is 50%. And just to be clear, the $5 in profit is calculated after you're factoring in the amount you paid for the item. So it's not like you're trading $10 for five, you're basically trading 10 for 15. Five is your profit on that $10 initial investment. So in that example, 
the $5 profit on a $10 investment is a 50% ROI. And that's the exact ROI that I'm looking for on the low end. So to kind of say that a little bit more succinctly, I'm looking for a sales rank less than 250000 and a return on investment greater than 50%. Okay. And are you still able to find enough products in just stores locally? I don't know. I would go into some stores and just, you know, walk out empty handed and kind of get discouraged by that. Yeah, there's definitely the inventory out there. So we do, we're buying a lot of product locally from these retail stores. It does seem at times that it shouldn't be possible to spend the amounts that we're spending (laughs) in these retail stores. But we do have people that are out there literally 40 hours a week, and it's their sole responsibility to find these deals. So that's one component. And then we've expanded to some additional sourcing methods beyond retail arbitrage too. So we do something called wholesale, which is buying from existing brands through their manufacturers or distributors, and we'll sell those products on Amazon as well. Okay. So that helps us to have a little bit more of a stable inventory source from those. But really with the retail arbitrage, that's been very consistent over the past few years as well. It's just a function of time for the biggest part and being willing to stick with the process. And then we've found that it leads to a consistent level of inventory coming in the door. Do you have relationships with these store managers? Like how are the people at Walmart not caught on to this? Like how are they not cherry picking the best stuff before you even have a chance to scan it? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it comes back to motivations and what people are actually looking to do to a large degree. So these stores, they don't know exactly what we're doing. They know we're buying the items for some purpose other than for our personal use, but they don't necessarily know that we're turning around and selling it on Amazon. So that's a component. There's the component that they might not want to actually take the risk of doing it. In some cases, it might jeopardize their job with the company if they're taking items that were supposed to go to be available for customers or something like that. Okay, okay. Those are a few possibilities, but you also touched on if we have relationships with the store managers. And we definitely do. There's managers who we work with who they give us a heads up if there's a really good deal on product. They let us know if there's going to be a, an especially good sale, anything like that. So we do make a conscious effort to get to know the employees at each store, build a relationship with them. And we found that to kind of provide an edge in some cases as well. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and 
you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Have you ever run into any drama while you're scanning and while your team is out scanning? Like, hey, you can't do that here. I think somebody posted in the Side Hustle Facebook group that there was a sign like at their library bookstore, some used bookstore, no scanners allowed or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, that's happened. There's one instance that comes to mind. Target, I believe it was last Christmas, so about a year ago, they had a really good sale on a bunch of video games. They were clearancing out a bunch and the prices were really low. And I went there with my roommate who also sells on Amazon and we loaded up a cart with about, I think we had close to 100 video games in the cart. (laughs) And when we got close to the checkout, somebody from their security team basically stopped us. They're they're from Asset Protection. They have like a blue shirt on. So it's a little bit different than the red Target shirts, but you know they work for Target. They got the Target name badge. They basically stopped us and asked us what we were going to be doing with the items and basically ended up saying that we couldn't purchase them. They ended up showing us. They had to pull out their anti-reseller policy saying that they have the ability to deny purchases to resellers. So yeah, we ended up having to put all those video games that we took the time scanning back on the shelf. So that's one instance that comes to mind, but that's really, that's been an outlier. It's few and far between to have anybody even ask yeah, what you're doing. It's very common to get a comment at the checkout register because you're buying, say, 12 of a random toy or 12 of some random food item. Yeah. So there's <laughs> comments on those all the time. But in terms of actually getting confronted about what you're doing or saying that this is wrong, that target example is really the only one I have where someone actually was able to stop what was happening. Yeah, which is weird because it's like, why do you care? They priced it at the price they were willing to sell it for. And it's like, okay, we're clearing out a hundred of these. Who cares? I don't know. Exactly. And it's in theory, it's their clearance items. So it's things they don't want in their stores. And I'm willing to buy all of these in one shot for the price they have it listed. So it's beyond me, but they have the rights to do what they want. Yeah. That's you're playing in somebody else's sandbox at that point. Exactly. Tell me about the wholesale thing. So this is kind of a way or maybe a next level. If you've been playing around with the retail arbitrage stuff, you know, you want to go the wholesale route. What would it look like to set up those relationships? Yeah, definitely. It's a little bit more of a next level from retail arbitrage. It's kind of a natural progression in a lot of ways too. What we started with was products that we were selling well via retail arbitrage. We would then reach out to those brands and the manufacturers directly and see if they were interested in setting up a wholesale relationship. Basically just meaning they send us a list of the products, they send us the catalog with their UPCs, their prices, and then we're able to use a few different tools to evaluate that to see what the items are going for on Amazon. 
That's been going pretty well. In terms of getting that started, we started off with products that we'd sold well in the past with retail arbitrage. That was kind of an easy, low-hanging fruit type of way to go because we knew the items sold well. So if we could buy them from directly from the source, like the manufacturer to the distributor, and still make a profit on those, and then we can continue to replenish those over time, that was kind of the way we got started. And then from there, we branched off to complementary products. So let's say we started off, these aren't accounts we have by any means, but let's just say we started off with Nerf guns. So let's say we got an account with them. Once we have that account, then we're going to go to other brands that sell guns that shoot darts, dart guns. So we would say, hey, we're selling your competitors' products. We're doing really well with those. We think that yours would do great as well. And would you be interested in a conversation to see if this is something that would be a fit? We started off with things we were selling, and then we followed the rabbit trails, if you will, or followed the similar types of products in similar categories, and then just continually branched off from there for the wholesale side of things. Okay. So the wholesale stuff is, is there a reason that people wouldn't do that right out of the gate? Like, is it just lower margin, like higher upfront cost? Is it, you got to be somewhat established before these brands will talk to you? Like what's, what's preventing me from going to do that tomorrow? Yeah, you could start off with wholesale right away. Odds are you won't know exactly what it takes to actually get an account or do the ordering. Generally speaking, with wholesale, it's going to be a lower return on investment. You're going to pay more for the product up front. There's minimum order quantities that you have to place. So you can't just go to, say, Target and buy one of the items to sell on Amazon. You might have to buy 20 or you might have to do a $500 minimum order. So that comes into play. You also, with wholesale, you generally need your own website to position yourself as kind of an expert in the e-commerce industry so that these brands are interested in working with you. So it's a little bit of a higher barrier to entry, but there's no reason. I mean, you could definitely start in there. You could start with wholesale if that sounds preferable to retail arbitrage. Okay. It's just starting off with retail arbitrage generally allows you to build up a base of information of how Amazon works, what types of products sell, what criteria you're looking at in terms of buying them. And then you can apply all of that to wholesale. So starting off with the retail in my experience, leads to a higher probability of success when doing wholesale. Yeah. Did you refer people to online selling experiment.com or did you have a separate page built out for your e-commerce business? Yeah, we have a separate page built out for the e-commerce business that is just for us to help us get wholesale suppliers. Okay. Okay. Can you estimate what percentage comes from retail arbitrage? What percentage of sales is wholesale at this point? We're getting close to 50-50 at this point. We've been really focusing on building up wholesale over the past year. So that's been growing quickly. And I think based on purchases for this last month, we were almost exactly 50-50 between wholesale and retail arbitrage. Okay. Is it similar criteria? Like, hey, I want to look for products that are sales rank 250,000 or better and that 50% ROI, or do you have to settle for lower margins on that stuff? On the wholesale stuff, we'll go as low as about 25 to 30% ROI just because we'll be able to sell it multiple times. So with retail arbitrage, it's generally a one-time deal. But then with wholesale, there's the potential that you're able to sell the item multiple times. Sure, sure, sure. What's a typical order size for something like that? If if you want to stick with the Nerf gun example, like I got to buy a thousand units or what? No, it's usually not anywhere close to that high. I would say the minimum orders that we've come across really range depending on the company. I mean, we've seen anywhere as low as like 200 bucks up to five to 10,000 is 
is not out of the norm. I'd say the most common is in the 1,000 to 2,000 range for the accounts that we're working with. So generally speaking, it's going to be in the ballpark of 20 to 50 units in most cases. And there are companies, though, where you can order just a single unit of each item as long as you're willing to get to their minimum order quantity. Wow. Okay. Yeah, we'll we'll get there eventually, I promise. (laughs) Okay. Any online arbitrage? Is this still a thing? Yeah, we're doing online arbitrage as well. So that's buying online retail websites and then turning around and selling it on Amazon. So that's a smaller component of what we're actually doing. Retail and wholesale are much larger than that, but it is something we do a little bit of as well. Was the OA X-Ray, is that still the tool that people use for that? OA X-Ray is one. There's a new one called Tactical Arbitrage that's a little bit more powerful and that that I'm using at the moment. So that's kind of the tool of the moment, if you will. There's been more and more tools popping up over the past few years in the Amazon selling space as well. So tactical arbitrage is kind of the consensus preferred online arbitrage tool at the moment from what I know. Okay. Yeah, that one seems even harder than the local sourcing. You're like, okay, maybe there's some market inefficiencies like at my local store, but like with the online stuff, especially if there's these software tools going out to find these deals, it's like, oh, you know, I imagine they disappear quickly. Yeah, they definitely go quick online. More people have access to them. So it's a competitive marketplace. Like if you're not using some of these tools, you'll have a challenge compared to people who are using the software that helps evaluate a bunch of items in a very short time period. Yeah, I mean, that's really a reason why I kind of prefer retail arbitrage to online arbitrage is because you have to actually go out there and find the items and you're only competing with people in your direct area as opposed to anyone with access to the internet. So you mentioned the tactical arbitrage thing and to go back to the very beginning, like the buying criteria, the sales rank and your kind of estimated profit will be shown in the Amazon seller app. If you're using that to scan any other preferred scanning apps to search, is this a worthwhile buy? Yeah. So in addition to the Amazon seller app and tactical arbitrage, I'm using an app called Scoutify. That's mainly for in retail stores. That is kind of like a version of the Amazon seller app on steroids. It has some additional information about the products, how well it's selling. It'll have links to do additional research on the product. Okay. Anything to manage the the inventory that I imagine you have quite a bit of it sitting around? Yeah, we've got a lot of inventory at this point. So I have that. We use a combination of inventory lab that helps us with accounting. It shows us what we have in stock at any given point in time. It also gives us some analytics on the profitability of our items, what the profitability is like in different categories. So that helps with the inventory. We have QuickBooks going as well. So that helps us make sure that our inventory is balanced out properly and is all accounted for. And then we also have something known as Restock Pro, which is another piece of software that helps us with wholesale order quantities. Okay. So we're using that to help manage our inventory as well. So there's there's quite a few tools that we're using in the business. I mean, we've I just touched on most of them, but there's a full list of all the tools and services that I'm using in the business. And that's available at onlinesellingexperiment.com slash resources. Okay, awesome. We'll link that up in the show notes for you. How do you decide what's going to sit around in your warehouse versus what you're going to send in immediately? Or is it like, hey, look, we're going to get all of this in Amazon's hands as soon as we can? For the most part, we're looking to get things into Amazon's hands as soon as possible. If we have inventory sitting around our warehouse 
for the most part, that means we've done something wrong. We've either bought too much of the product or it was originally sent to Amazon and then we had to get some of the quantity sent back to us due to it not selling as well as we were expecting. Okay. And they charge you for that, right? Yep. Yep. They charge you storage fees based on the items. And then if your items have been in stock greater than six months, they charge something known as long-term storage fees, which is basically a tax on items that are just taking up space in their warehouse and not selling. Yeah. And those fees, I think it's for the six month fees, it's around like $12 a cubic foot that the item is taking up in the warehouses. So those fees are very substantial. So there's there's been times where we've had to get items sent back to us to avoid those fees. Okay. So what happened there? Is it just like, hey, we this looked like a good buy, but it just didn't end up selling as fast as we thought it would? Pretty much. I mean, that's the most common example where we forecasted that we'd be able to sell a more significant quantity of the item than we actually ended up being able to. I can think of one example from last year where there was a toy we were doing really well with. We placed an order in around October. We sold through that by about November 15th. So then we placed a reorder from our supplier. We were hoping to get it beginning of December. It didn't end up showing up until mid-December. By the time it got to Amazon's warehouses, it was almost already past Christmas. So then we're stuck with 100 of this extremely seasonal toy that has very little demand outside of the Christmas season. Okay. It was a combination of our supplier not, well, we didn't order enough right away for the Christmas season. Then our supplier wasn't able to get it to us quite as quickly as we would have liked. And then we still sent it into Amazon thinking we had a chance to sell through them. And then they were ended up being in stock for over six months. So that's one example. And that was kind of a multiple things went wrong and we've put things in place to make sure that doesn't happen yeah. <laughs> in the future. But that's the type of thing that can happen where you end up with items in stock longer than you want. Yeah. You're just like, well, do I eat this? There's another Christmas season coming around, but it's like, is it better to ship it back to you and then ship it back in in next November? Well, that's what we actually ended up doing. Okay. And we, so last year we recalled, we recalled them in, I think it was around February and they sat in our warehouse here for seven months. And then we, we just sent them back in. We almost have sold through all of them at this point. So it's not like it's a big loss overall, but the money was tied up for about a year and it took up some space in the warehouse too. So it's not an ideal scenario, but you can afford to make some mistakes on some items as long as you're right most of the time. Yeah. Any other expensive mistakes or, or products that ended up being duds? Oh yeah. We've had, <laughs> we've had quite a few duds over the years. There was... Target was selling the My Size Elsa doll from Frozen. So it was like this three and a half foot tall doll from the movie Frozen. And they were, for a while, they were selling for quite a bit above retail prices. The retail price in Target's were, was $60. And they were going for between $200 and $250 wow. for a lot of the Christmas season. Okay, geez. We actually ended up buying, I think, around 15 of them on eBay. And we paid about $120 each at the time. So we were buying them for double retail. They were at the time going on Amazon for over 200. So we thought we still had a window of opportunity. And then by the time we actually got them to Amazon, there was basically a nationwide restock <laughs> of this toy in Target. So there was a ton more supply at Amazon. So we ended up having to sell them for less than we actually paid for them on eBay. So we paid like $120 a unit and we had to sell them for right around a hundred to just to kind of get the money back out of them. So that was, that was a loser. And that was a risky proposition 
as well. So that maybe we deserved it on that case. Another one where we lost was there was a local liquidation company that we work with occasionally. They had a big lot of these Neil Patrick Harris autobiography books, and we were able to buy about 200 of those. And we only paid like a dollar or two a piece. But shortly after we bought them, the price just went to almost nothing on Amazon. Like right now you can buy it for like 25 cents plus shipping. So it's like four bucks. So we got stuck with a bunch of those, ended up just donating them to a local thrift store. I mean, we've lost on a lot of items, but we've won on enough to cancel it out. So those, those are a couple that come to mind in terms of things that didn't go as planned. Right. Doesn't always work out the way that you plan, but still, um, if you can have more hits than losses, then overall it adds up to be a profitable business. And like you said, kind of figuring a way to turn over that money faster, kind of grow, you know, multiply that cash in a much faster way than you might in in other investment angles. I'm curious, what's changed in the FBA world since 2014? I understand there's more categories are restricted and stuff like that. What's, you know, what have you seen kind of pop up for new sellers? Yeah, when it comes to new sellers, there's a few changes that have happened since 2014. I would definitely say there's more sellers overall. So there's a little bit higher level of competition when it comes to Amazon. I mean, there's more buyers as well. So it helps to kind of cancel it out, but it's not something that's a direct correlation. The brand restrictions and product restrictions, which you touched on a little bit, those have become a little bit more intense over the past three years. So things that a new seller might've been able to sell three years ago, they might not be able to today. So that could be like a Disney toy, any like big name brand. It's more likely today that you'd be restricted on it as a new seller, as opposed to three years ago. Sure. And when a product is restricted, that just means that you can't sell it on Amazon at that time without going through a special approval process. So there's more, more items like that, that you will run into. This doesn't affect retail arbitrage and wholesale sellers as much, but there's been a change to Amazon's review system. They've made some changes that make it harder to manipulate the review system, which obviously they should have done. I mean, nobody should be able to manipulate the review system, but people did it in the past with private label items or their own branded items. They would sell a bunch at a discount to people they know in return for them leaving a five-star review on the product. So Amazon's really cracked down on that which I do think is a good thing overall. It hurts some sellers who weren't all that ethical in their practices. So I think it's a good thing overall, but that is a change that's made it more difficult for people to launch their own brands on Amazon because you can't just buy five-star reviews in the same fashion that you used to be able to. Right. There's also been some changes in the fee structures. So with books in particular, the fee structures have gotten a little bit more expensive But I think the change in brand restrictions is probably the biggest change that would affect new sellers. So Amazon has a bunch of different categories that you can sell in as a brand new seller. Say those include things like toys, home improvement, home goods, kitchen items, books, all those types of categories are wide open. You can sell in those categories. It used to be that you could sell just about every product you scan in those categories. Now today, some of the bigger brands, you won't be able to sell those right out of the gate and you would have to go through a separate approval process. So that's probably the biggest change. What's that approval process look like? Is that hard to do? Is that just a matter of raising your hand, submitting a request or what does that take? The approval process is different for each brand and each product. So sometimes it is as easy as raising your hand and clicking 
basically you go into Amazon, you act like you want to list a product for sale, and then it's going to tell you that you're restricted. And then there's going to be a button that says request approval. So you click on that request approval button. Sometimes it's going to say, great, you're approved. You can now sell this item. Other times it's going to say you need invoices from an authorized distributor. So that could be like finding a wholesale supplier for the item. If you send in invoices for that, you'll get the approval. Other times you'll need an actual authorization from the brand. You'll need like a letter saying that you can sell it. So that's kind of the worst case scenario, if you will, because that's very difficult to get, especially from a big brand. But sometimes submitting like retail receipts is enough. Sometimes it needs to be a wholesale invoice and other times just raising your hand is enough. What I will say there too is like the more items that you sell, the easier it becomes to get the approval, especially if you're selling items related to the item that you're currently restricted on. So getting some initial traction is very helpful in getting future approvals. So they'll look at your account history and say, okay, this person is clearly serious about this. It's it's going to be worthwhile to ungate them. Yep. Even if even if your wholesale invoice in this case is like a Walmart receipt. Yep. Sometimes it will work. It, it really depends on like which Amazon rep is looking at your product. And yeah, that's kind of a change too in the past few years is that now the restrictions are more seller-based. Like each individual seller won't necessarily be restricted on the same things. Three years ago, for the most part, there were brands that just no one could sell. And it was kind of all across the board. It was the same for each seller, what they were restricted on, what they were eligible to sell. And now today, it's a little bit more based on the individual seller, how their metrics are, when they started, things like that. Okay. So yeah, if you're out in Target scanning a thing and it says, hey, this is restricted, if you, well, I think Target will give you a 30-day return policy, so you might as well bring it home and try and upload it and see if you just happen to get that you know lucky brand approval guy and you could sell it. And otherwise, if they deny you, you can always return it and get your money back at, at Target, I suppose. Yeah, and you could actually go through the full process on the Amazon seller app on your phone. So if you have to submit invoices, then you would actually need to purchase it. But you can go through the approval process and see what they're actually going to be requesting on the Amazon seller app on your phone. You can know that before you actually purchase the item. And then just one other note on the restricted items. Just because it's restricted on Amazon doesn't mean that it's restricted on, say, eBay or a different marketplace. So if you really are coming across a really exceptional deal on something, it's worth considering selling it on eBay or even like a Facebook marketplace or an offer up, a let go, an app like that locally. Okay. So just know that especially when you're just getting started and you're trying to build up a bankroll, just because you see a product is restricted on Amazon, it doesn't mean that it's not an opportunity to sell somewhere. Okay, fair enough. I'm curious, like with the eBay stuff, do you sometimes find yourself moving inventory over there or in these other marketplaces or is it you're pretty much focused on Amazon? Yeah, Amazon is our biggest channel by far. We are also selling on eBay. We're selling on Jet.com and then we have our own website as well. I mean, Amazon's still 95% plus of our sales, but those do contribute. And we do at times buy things just for eBay. If it's Amazon's best for like new products that don't need any description, but if there's something that's a little bit wrong with the product or it's in use condition where the customer needs pictures to be able to see exactly what that item is, then that's an instance where we'll, we'll buy it specifically for eBay as opposed to selling it on Amazon. So I think there's a lot of opportunity on eBay too. I don't feel like I've personally exhausted Amazon yet, so we haven't spent a ton of time yeah. on eBay, but we'll we'll get there eventually. You ever get stressed out to have all this capital tied up in inventory? 
I don't know, like what risks do you see in this in this business of the you know crazy Amazon rule change or some unforeseen thing happening? Like what keeps you up at night? For me personally, not a lot keeps <laughs> me up at night because, and I'll I'll get to the risks. But personally, all the decisions I make in my business are I'm looking at the risk reward ratio of what that decision is. So whether that's selling a product on Amazon, whether that's spending money on advertising, anything like that, I'm evaluating what the risk of that decision is and what the potential reward of that decision is. And then I basically come up with what I believe is the best course of action for each decision for my business. And then I go with that. I don't second guess my decisions from there. By all means, I'll reevaluate once I have the information, but I don't sit up at night worrying about if the decision I made is the right decision. But in terms of the risks of selling on Amazon, there's definitely the risk of having capital tied up in inventory. That's something to be aware of. Like you mentioned, Amazon can change the rules. You can get your Amazon account suspended. Have you ever had your account suspended? I actually have had my account suspended. That was in the summer of 2015. And it was due to, this was kind of another buy that went wrong. It was called the Pedicure Power. So it's a nail filing tool for pets, primarily for dogs. We bought a liquidation lot of these from a local supplier, bought like 750 of these nail filing tools, sent most of them into Amazon. It turned out that about 10 to 15% of them didn't work. So we were getting them returned at a very high rate. Amazon shut down that particular listing. We happened to have an issue on another product, not nearly to that scale at the same time. And we ended up getting the account suspended primarily due to that. Oh, geez. Yeah. So if customers are returning items and saying that they're not as described or that they're not working, that's a pretty big problem, big red flag in Amazon's eyes. I was able to get it resolved. I was able to get my account reinstated within about 36 hours. So it was a pretty quick turnaround to get back in action. But basically to get it back, I had to agree. So to get reinstated, you have to submit a plan of action to Amazon that basically acknowledges what happened and your plan so that it won't happen again. Okay. And I basically put in the plan of action that I wouldn't buy from liquidation suppliers like that anymore unless it was connected directly to the actual manufacturer. So like in that example that I mentioned that led to the account suspension, we were buying from a legitimate place. It's not like these were counterfeit goods or anything like that, but they weren't directly from the manufacturer. They'd changed hands a couple of times and we didn't have the invoices that would prove the chain of custody back to the actual manufacturer. Yeah. So basically agreed that we wouldn't buy items like that in the future unless we actually could trace it back directly to the manufacturer. So that was a eye-opening experience and nothing like that's happened since. That's good. But that kind of alludes to another risk too. If you are selling any product on Amazon, you want to make sure that you have the proper documentation for it. So that means having a receipt that shows it came from an authorized retail store, having a wholesale invoice, wherever the item came from, you want something that shows exactly what the item you purchased was and where it came from so that in the event there's a complaint, you have the proper documentation that Amazon needs to verify that that item is authentic. Okay. Okay. So if they have any issue, you say, well, I got this at Target. I got this at Walmart, wherever. Exactly. Okay. What's next for you? You got some big revenue goals that you're aiming for? You're going to go down the private label route? What's 2018 have in store for you? Yeah, 2018. That's a good question. We're looking to continue to grow the online retail side of the business. That's kind of the focus. Number one, putting things in place to keep that growing, keep expanding on all of our channels. Wholesale, 
will probably be our biggest focus for 2018. We want to build out the team a little bit more there, get some people helping us do more outreach to brands that we might be able to sell and products we might be able to sell. That's a big focus. And then I've been personally putting in more time on the online selling experiment.com website and putting out more content there and just helping people learn how to get started. So I've got some plans in place for that. They're still developing, but I anticipate that'll be a big area of focus for 2018. Now that you got everything else kind of delegated out, you got time to work on on this little personal branded project. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of the the next frontier for me. I mean, I've had the website now. It's been live for over four years, but it hasn't been my primary focus for very much of that four years. It's always been kind of secondary to the actual online retail business. And I, I would do the online selling experiment part when I had time. And now it's shifting a little bit to I can spend more time there. And then the online retail business continues to grow as well. Yeah. That's the side hustle you've been focused on actually making it happen. Yep. What's I'm curious actually about the the press exposure. Was that a result of a proactive outreach on your part or did people kind of seek you out? Yeah, they primarily sought me out for that. I did an AMA on Reddit in the entrepreneur subreddit. So for anyone not familiar, an AMA is an ask me anything on basically the subcategory for entrepreneurs on a website known as Reddit. And that got a lot of exposure. At the time, it was like one of the top posts in the past month on the subreddit. I think I was looking at it. It's like in the top 50 posts of the past year oh, wow. on that subreddit. Okay, And then from that, a team from CNBC reached out after they saw the AMA. And I did a few different phone calls with them. They pitched the idea to their team of doing a story about the business. And they ended up deciding to do a story. So then I did a basically a Skype interview with the CNBC team. They had me send a bunch of footage of me working in the office, sourcing in retail stores, things like that. And then they put together the story that went live on CNBC. So that's how that one came to be. And then the team from Good Morning America reached out to me after seeing the CNBC article. So basically, it all stems back to the AMA slash Ask Me Anything on Reddit. And then that led directly to the CNBC story. And then the CNBC story led directly to the Good Morning America story. Okay, interesting. Well, that's a good, that's a great tip. If anybody's looking to get some press exposure, you know, maybe it starts on Reddit. You never know who's reading these things. Exactly. And I mean, I put a lot of time into that Reddit AMA and I, I gave detailed answers to each person that asked the question. So at the end of the day, a lot of things went right. I, by no means was I anticipating that that AMA would lead to some of this national media exposure, but I made sure I was really focusing on delivering as much value as I could in the AMA. And then I think that kind of came through and might have played into the factor. Basically, I'm, I didn't go halfway on the AMA is all I'm saying. Right. I had no anticipation that it would lead to what it did. I'm very grateful that it did. But I think kind of the whole way through with my business, I've just been, I focus on doing the best I can in each thing that I'm doing. And then that's worked out well. It's led to the right things continuing to happen. Yeah. I think that's actually a really good illustration of like, I'm just doing this one thing and not really not necessarily knowing where it's going to lead, right? Like starting out flipping textbooks in college and then all of a sudden having this huge team behind you and this warehouse and this really crazy e-commerce business. Ryan, this is fascinating stuff. Really appreciate you taking the time to catch up with me and, and the rest of Side Hustle Nation. OnlineSellingExperiment.com is Ryan's home base online. You can check him out over there. And uh, let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. Take action on something 
you find interesting when it comes to making income on your own terms. I think that having the freedom to be in control of making that income and having it be on your terms is, for me, it's provided just a ton of freedom in my life. And luckily, it, it was able to more than surpass my full-time income. But even when I was working full-time and was just able to make an extra few hundred dollars a month here and there, that provided a lot of additional freedom. It's very empowering as compared to having to work for a job you might not like or do something you wouldn't want to. So my advice is just to most likely there's something out there that's intriguing to you. Maybe it's selling on Amazon. Maybe it's putting together an ebook. I mean, Nick's got a ton of podcasts with successful people who are doing it in all types of different aspects of business. But my advice would be just pick one, something that interests you and take action on that and see where it goes. As we've kind of touched on here, you don't exactly know where one thing is going to lead, but getting started and taking that first step is essential to finding out where the path goes. Absolutely. You want to take a trip down memory lane to see what 2014 Ryan had to say? What did I say? Yeah. He said, get your mind right. Think, how can I make this happen? Nice. Which I think is pretty wise words, right? Yeah, I like it. The thoughts have evolved <laughs> slightly from there. But yeah, I'll stick by the 2014 advice as good advice too. I like that. How can I make this happen? And then combining that with take action on something that you find interesting. Ryan, thank you so much, man. We'll catch up with you soon. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's been fun. All right, my top takeaways from this call with Ryan. Number one, build your team. So this is based on my own retail and clearance arbitrage experiments. The biggest bottleneck was in sourcing inventory. It was profitable for me, but it was like this needle in a haystack type of search and it was time consuming. I didn't really think until this chat with Ryan that it was something that could be outsourced. But if you've got a well-defined process and you know buying criteria like Ryan has, you might be able to remove yourself from certain elements of your business like the sourcing. In fact, that point has me looking at some of the processes inside my own business for opportunities to delegate and, and train some outside help to really ramp things up um, in the next year. You can't do it all on your own forever. Takeaway number two is to build relationships. The FBA business, the fulfillment by Amazon business, is an attractive one, at least to me, because it's kind of anonymous and anyone can do it, but the people who seem to be doing really well with it are the ones that are building relationships with suppliers, with store managers, with liquidators, with brands, and even with Amazon itself. And at the end of the day, you know, people are going to do business with people they know, like, and trust. So yeah, you can scan stuff in the clearance aisle and you can find some profitable items, but also be thinking outside the box a little bit to see who else might have a lead on some inventory and, and try and begin to cultivate relationships with them. How can you help them get what they want? So that was takeaway number two, build relationships. And takeaway number three is to diversify. It sounds like Ryan has made a pretty concerted effort to diversify his sourcing efforts, some online, some in stores, some wholesale, and across multiple product lines and product categories. And I think that's key because the rules are always going to be changing. And like you talked about, some of these products aren't going to be as profitable as you thought they're going to be. Sometimes you're going to have to take a little bit of a bath on some of them. And with Amazon, you're kind of playing in somebody else's sandbox. So of course, it makes sense to get while the getting's good. But speaking from experience, it's easy to get burned when all your eggs are in one basket. 
Be sure to hit up SideHustleNation.com slash Ryan Grant for links to all the resources mentioned in today's episode and to download the free PDF highlight reel with all of Ryan's top tips from the call. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show where we're diving into perhaps the most important and maybe the most overlooked productivity hack out there. Hit the subscribe button in your podcast player app and it'll be automatically downloaded to your device next Thursday morning. I'll see you then. Hustle on. Thanks for listening to the Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com.